This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. We read God's Word this morning as it is found in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Romans 4. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect, because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, that promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the Father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, 
and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. We read that far in God's holy and inspired word. We now turn to the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 24. Lord's Day 24. The Heidelberg Catechism, having explained the doctrine of justification or our righteous standing before God because of Jesus Christ and by faith alone, in Lord's Day 23, now defends that doctrine, that truth of Scripture in Lord's Day 24 defending it against different challenges, questions, attacks against that truth. Lord's Day 24, question answer 62, but why? Why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Because that the righteousness which can be approved of, approved of before the tribunal or judgment seat of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law and also that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. What? Do not our good works merit which yet God will reward in this and in a future life? This reward is not of merit, but of grace. But doth not this doctrine make men careless and profane? By no means, for it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 24, which we consider this morning, as I said, is, is about the same doctrine which Lord's Day 23 was on, which we considered last Sunday. It is about the heart of the gospel, justification on account of Christ's righteousness alone and experience through faith alone. Only this time, in Lord's Day 24, the Catechism defends that doctrine against many objections and errors that come against that doctrine. Before we consider those objections and errors and answer them in order, I remind you of what we considered last Sunday. Remember that we distinguished in justification that which is objective and that which is subjective. Objectively, justification has already taken place before we even believed, even before we existed. I remind you, in eternity, God has looked upon His people as righteous. And 2,000 years ago, when Christ lived a perfectly righteous life and suffered all the passion we deserve, He earned for us his elect people, that righteousness. 
In that sense, objectively, we already have righteousness as His people. God reckons, He counts, He credits not only Christ's suffering or passion, we call it His passive obedience, but God counts, He credits, He reckons to us Christ's obedience to all of God's commandments, all of His perfect good works, He counts as ours. Having considered that justification in the objective sense, then we moved last week, I remind you, to subjectively. How does God, though He knows our justification in His mind, how does God cause us in our minds to know that justification, that we are righteous before Him? We considered how that was by faith. That is by faith alone. The instrument, the only instrument He uses is faith alone. That's how God in our consciousness, in our minds, has us experience and be assured that we are righteous in His sight. He joins us to Christ by a living bond. We, by His power, holy of the Holy Spirit's power, believe, or as the Catechism puts it, receive and apply that to Myself by faith alone. Today, we consider Objections to this teaching that we found in Lord's Day 23. These objections, as you know, come from the Roman Catholic doctrine, the Roman Catholic Church, which officially teaches errors against this doctrine of justification by faith alone. Roman Catholic errors, I remind you, are not outdated old errors that we don't have to be concerned about. But Roman Catholic errors are the errors that surround us and that constantly threaten the church of Jesus Christ to give up this heart of the Gospel. And so it is very important to consider the age-old errors, for there is nothing new under the sun that will come against us today also. This Lord's Day is not only for a warning against false doctrine that might be in the Roman Catholic Church or that might be in the Federal Vision Reformed churches coming in, but it's also to warn us about our proud, sinful nature. It's very practical. Every single day, beloved, you have to battle against a sinful nature. Young people, children, that sinful nature is like a pope teaching false doctrine inside of you. That sinful nature is the old man who is like a deceptive federal vision teacher. And you must combat errors within you. Pride would have you take your good works, your righteousnesses, and seek to contribute in some way to your justification before God. As I live with you in this world, I see on packages of chips, innocent, 
on top cairns, guilt-free. And people, not only with regard to food, but exercise and looks and all sorts of standards in this world, tell you, this is how you are guilt-free. This is how you're innocent. By eating a certain thing, by dressing a certain way, by conforming yourself to certain social norms, by being comparatively righteous, meaning as long as you're not as bad as that sexual molester, then you are righteous before God. This is the constant pressure of the world and your sinful nature against you. Always, always, always. You have to battle against works being a part of your justification or forgiveness before God. So we need to know the negative as we consider it this morning. Not by works, not even partly, are we righteous before God. Righteous without works. First, the question of good works. Second, the challenge of reward. And third, the charge of antinomianism. The question of good works. We follow the three questions in Lord's Day 24. Question of good works. Then the challenge of reward, a concept of Scripture. And then the, the charge of antinomianism. The first question of Lord's Day 24 is a question about good works. That must be clear in our minds. Good works. Why cannot our good works be the whole or a part of our righteousness before God? And in order to understand this question correctly and then answer it or understand the answer correctly, I want to refresh your memory regarding what a good work is. That, I believe, has been part of the confusion in the last few years on both sides of contention. What is a good work? We must understand that even as we consider this Lord's Day on justification. A good work, I remind you, has three qualifications. You find it later in Lord's Day 33. In Lord's Day 33, nine Lord's Days later, you find the explanation of what a good work is. Three qualifications. Never forget this. First, a good work is that which proceeds. It comes from a true faith. Second, a good work is that which is in accordance with God's law. And third, a good work is that which is aimed as its goal, the glory of God. Only if a work meets those three qualifications is it truly what God calls a good work. Think about how it must proceed from a true faith, first of all. Your unregenerate neighbor and coworker cannot do a single good work. You know that? There's no such thing as a common grace that works in the reprobate so that they can do a good work. They may do, they, they may do things outwardly that look good. It's not a true good work. But now, more applicable to this Lord's Day, even you as a believer, apply this, even you as a believer are not doing a true good work if it does not come forth from faith. You as a Christian 
are not automatically doing good works just because you're a Christian. It's what makes a good work difficult to do. It is only as our hearts by faith are relying upon Jesus Christ, and as we are relying on Jesus Christ, we do a good work, then can we call it a good work? So that when Christ is not on our mind, when we are ignoring Him and relying on our own willpower, and we do something that might impress others, and others might think it's a good work, it's not must proceed from a true faith. Romans 14.23, whatsoever is not faith is sin. Secondly, a good work is performed according to God's law. And you know the Ten Commandments. We read that this morning. But you also know that the heart of the Ten Commandments that we read is love. Love for God, first of all. And never losing a love for God. You don't forget love for God and then try to love your neighbor. But have a love for God, a continuing love for God, you are also loving your neighbor. That's the law. Out of faith, according to the law of love. And then third, a good work is aimed at God's glory. Not aimed at my glory, not so that I get thanked and praised and commented on and my reputation increases. That might be the result of a good work, but that's not my aim. If that's my aim, instead of God's glory, it's not a good work. Out of a true faith, according to the law of love, and aimed at God's glory, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, having refreshed our memory on a good work, very briefly, a few conclusions. We already said an unbeliever can't do a good work. But that makes us remember how difficult it is for you and I to do a good work. And not only how difficult it is so that many of the good works that we think are good works aren't really good works, but this too, even our good works are so weak. They're not perfect works. And this is the main reason I wanted to consider those three qualifications of good works as we approach this Lord's Day. You must know the distinction, the difference between a good work that God does enable you to do and a perfectly good work. The only one who has ever done a single perfectly good work is Jesus Christ. As we saw last week, his life was filled with perfect obedience to God's law. Perfect good works, outwardly and inwardly, all amazingly for us in our place is his active obedience imputed to us so that he is our righteousness. He's the only one who has done perfectly good works, and that has been placed on our account, credited to us. Now we approach that question. Why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Because that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be not just good, notice. 
must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law. To sum it up, the just God, this is about God's justice, the just and righteous and holy God will only judge you as righteous if you have perfect works. Not just good works. You must have perfect works for Him to judge you as righteous. And not only must you have perfect works, but you must have perfect works your entire life. Like Jesus did. You must not do a single imperfect good work even. But from the moment you were conceived until the moment of your death, there must be pristine good works. Only then will God judge you righteous. That's what's required before His tribunal or judgment seat. And if there's a single good work that's not perfect, then God must judge you as unrighteous and worthy of hell. Beloved, does any one of us then want a single of our good works to be part of our justification? Or do we want only Jesus' perfect good works? I pray you know the answer. And you have the answer by faith in your heart. But the answer of the Heidelberg Catechism explains more. Not only does it speak of God's justice requiring perfect works rather than only good works, it has us, it forces us to examine those good works, which may be properly called good works. Here's the humbling reality. We don't like this. I've heard and I've read Reformed people take offense to this and even mock this. But here's the truth about our good works. Our best works in this life are all imperfect. And we want to put a period there and not go on. Our best works are all imperfect. That's the milder word. But the catechism says, and defiled with sin. Remember, the catechism is not talking about just our good works, but now it says our best works are not only imperfect, but our best works are defiled. Because though our new man, yes, a new man, a perfect new man, does good works, our old man always taints those works, defiles those works with sin. All our righteousnesses, as you know, Isaiah 64, 6, are as filthy rags. So do, do those good works 
This is not to discourage you from doing those good works. You must do good works out of thankfulness. I exhort you to. They are good works in distinction from the sinful works that you also do. Do the good works, not the sinful works. Do the good works out of thanks. God delights in those good works. Those good works are not vain. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And yet, when you do, as you do, after you do, don't try to take them and bring them into the realm of your forgiveness or justification before God. Because they are defiled with our sin. Catechism answers the question of good works from the perspective of God's justice or righteousness. And then talks about how our good works cannot be brought because they are defiled with sin. But there are additional reasons implied in Lord's Day 24 and taught in the passage that we have before us in Romans chapter 4. Additional reasons for why our good works cannot be part of our righteousness before God. And the first is this, the perfect and sufficient work of Jesus Christ would be despised. The perfect work of Christ would be despised or displaced. Think about that. Let that sink into your soul. I know it can bring up difficult feelings because of past accusations, but we need to know the reality of this. Why not my spirit wrought new man produced good works, at least partly contributing to my righteousness before God? Children, here's why. Because then I would be saying, Jesus' works aren't good enough. That's why. God says, I will only declare you righteous if you have perfectly good works. And then He says, I give to My people Jesus Christ and all of His perfectly good works. And when we try to take one of ours and put it in for our righteousness before God, we're saying, well, I don't think He did enough. Not sufficient. And that's, that's blasphemous. Romans 10, 3 and 4, Paul speaks to the Jewish leaders, the Jews of his day, as well as to our sinful natures. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves into the righteousness of God. For Christ, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Christ is our righteousness, perfect, pure. Don't displace Him. Don't add to Him. 
He has done enough. Repent, beloved, when you and I find our sinful nature, our selfish old man, or self-righteous old man wanting after we sin to say, well, at least I have done that good work in order to comfort ourselves. No. For the peace and comfort of forgiveness, look only to Christ. Another related reason that our good works cannot even be part of our righteousness before God is that is this, that salvation then would not be gracious. Or as Scripture puts it, grace would not be grace. You find that in verse 16 of Romans 4. Paul puts it positively, therefore it is of faith, meaning faith in Christ, that it might be by grace. What he puts in the positive there, and Paul negatively states in Romans 11, verse 6, and if by grace, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. The Roman Catholic and the Federal Visionists of today will do all they can to try to get you and me to insert good works and to our justification, not only objectively, but in our consciousness. And so they will, they will even explain to you, yes, we believe grace. Yes, we believe that graciously Christ has lived a perfect righteous life for us. They will even agree with you on that. Tongue in cheek, but yes. And then, in addition to that, they will try to insert. But for you to experience that justification in your consciousness, there's still some works to do. They'll call it grace. Because the good works are even are done by grace. But the Scripture says, then it is no more grace. If justification in any sense, whether objective or subjective, is by works, then it's no more grace. Third, then God would be robbed of glory. That's verse 2 of Romans 4. If Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. Yes, even if Abraham were justified by spirit-wrought good works, then he would have something to boast about. But it's by grace that you're saved. Ephesians 2 says, 8 and 9, not of works, so that no man might boast in himself. But all glory may go or must go to God. And the final reason I explained to you this morning shows the folly, the folly, the foolishness of attempting to make our works part of our righteous standing before God. If good works were part of our righteousness before God, then we lose our assurance. 
we lose our assurance. Verse 16 of chapter 4 that we read, Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. To the end that the promise might be sure. If justification were by my works in any sense, I would be forever wondering whether I have done enough. I would be thinking about those qualifications for good works, wouldn't I? And asking, well, have I done any good works? And then, my righteousness is doubted. The Belgian Confession puts it this way, Article 24, then we would always be in doubt, tossed to and fro without any certainty, and our poor consciences continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the suffering and death of our Savior. Believe, beloved. Just believe by the power of the Spirit in you as you hear His Word. Believe the finished work of Jesus Christ His perfect righteousness imputed to you. God justifies you. Declares you righteous through faith alone. Because of Jesus alone. Without works. Having answered the question of good works, this is, or there is a challenge to that doctrine. The challenge is a challenge with the concept of reward. What do not our good works merit which yet God will reward in this and in a future life. That's another sneaky, tricky, devious challenge. I say that because it's one of those challenges to the doctrines of grace and of justification. It comes at us today also, but it's mixed with the truth. The most devious lies of Satan and the hardest to detect are the ones where there is an element of truth, but mixed in with that element of truth are lies, falsehoods. And if you focus on the truth and don't detect precisely what the lies are attached to the truth, you will swallow the poison of the lie. That's why they're so deceptive. So notice, first of all, the truth. And I emphasize the truth because we may give up this truth either. The truth is found in the second part of question 63. The truth is that there is such a thing as a reward. God will reward in this life and in a future life. Now the rest of the question will, it includes a lie. But that second part is truth. Let's acknowledge that loud and clear. God will reward His people in this life and in the future life. And by that I mean very frankly... Think of the word after. Not before, but after we do good works. God does. He will reward us with blessings. 
in that order, I'm not afraid of this truth of Scripture. And you ought not be either. Logically and in time, the Holy Spirit enables you to do good works. And after you do good works, God graciously rewards you. That's biblical and confessional. And it's common sense. Zoom out at your life, of your life, and think about that part of the question, in the future life. That means what you're going to receive in heaven, you will receive rewards. No one denies that. When will you receive rewards in heaven? Well, only after this life in which God's people do good works. It's common sense. It is biblically based to say God gives good rewards after we do good works. He enables us to come to church and in this life too. He enables us to come to church and after we come to church, He gives rewards. Even spiritual rewards and blessings. After a husband loves his wife, he gives rewards of a good marriage. He doesn't have to. But often, normally, usually he does. After you study hard at school, children, after you work, labor diligently in your studies, have love for your Savior, he does give good grades. He rewards. And there are so many other examples. About rewards, we can say and should say God has ordained those rewards from eternity. He gives us 100% both the will and the power to do the good works and then graciously accepts those good works, though defiled with sin, but sanctified by His grace in Christ. And then crowns His gifts, the Belgian Confession says, with rewards. It's unbiblical to, de to deny the concept of rewards. It's even an antinomian tendency to deny rewards altogether. Hebrews 11 verse 6, it says explicitly about faith that the believer believes that God is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And I could say so much more about rewards, but the Lord's Day isn't about, Lord, about rewards mainly. But now, having positively expressed what Scripture teaches about the truth of rewards which come after good works, know the falsehoods that attack the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Two of them related. First, there is the twisting of the concept of reward to teach a reward of merit. Catechism addresses that right away. The reward is not of merit, but of grace. When God gives rewards after good works, don't ever think that those rewards are earned, deserved, merited by you. It's a mere grace. He graciously gives them. 
This is not only a Romish concept, a reward of merit, but it is a popular notion in this world. If you ask anyone in this world and in the church world what a reward is, they will define for you a reward as that which is meritorious, that which you ha- someone has merited. We live in a capitalistic society that even promotes that idea more and more. And I get it. I know there is a proper sense in which we can speak from man to man as we go to work and we work hard there that we earn an income. But even as the child of God engages in the job in the workplace and he quote-unquote earns an income, he doesn't look at it merely from a man-to-man perspective. But he's always thinking about God, God's perspective. When I work, when I do anything good on this earth, why does God give me any gift? Why does He give me an income? Why does He provide food on my table? Why does He give any rewards in this life? Is it because I've merited it with anything I've done? No. The most mature of us have the tendency to feel entitled, deserving of anything that comes our way and that God gives. But we've merited nothing from God. Rewards from God are always, 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 always rewards of grace. Undeserved. Or as Jesus put it, when you have done all those things which are commanded, you say we are unprofitable servants. We've done that which was our duty to do. Luke 17, verse 10. And more, we've defiled those good works with our sins. So that if God were to, at any moment, give you a reward of merit, that reward wouldn't be a positive kind of reward. At any moment He would give you a reward of merit, it would be judgment. Rewards of grace. To encourage us. To help us along. That's true. But don't insert merit with the reward. And then related to that, Rome mixes in, and our human natures want to mix in with the concept of reward, not only merit, but that it particularly merits justification. That's why the question is here in Lord's Day 24, the intention of heretics today is to make rewards not only merit generally with God, merit good things on this earth and good things in heaven, but the intention of those who teach false doctrine is to insert merit of justification, a righteous standing before God. And that is a lie. That is falsehood. God does not give you a reward of merit. He especially does not give you a reward of righteousness because of or by the instrument of good works. 
Only because of Christ through faith. Having answered the challenge of the concept of reward, finally the catechism addresses a practical argument. The practical argument is the charge of antinomianism. But doth not this doctrine make men careless and profane? Notice the word doctrine. The charge or accusation is brought against doctrine. The truth itself. That God judges His people righteous only because and for the sake of Jesus Christ alone and His perfect righteousness and that this is experienced by faith alone. That this truth, this gospel, this God-glorifying, soul-assuring, man-humbling, Christ-exalting, gracious gospel causes men to be antinomian? How absurd. That's ridiculous. The truth of God never makes men do that. Don't blame it on the truth. Don't blame it on the doctrine. God forbid, may it never be. By no means, the catechism says. The opposite is actually true. It is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. The truth, the truth of justification by faith alone and Christ alone, when God works in the minds and hearts of His people by faith, is a power unto a godly life. Because they will live in thanks by His grace. You will be stirred. You will be thrilled. There will be a welling up of gratitude within you. And an overflowing of good works. And by faith, you look to Jesus. And you keep looking to Jesus. And you cling to Jesus and His perfect righteousness throughout your life. This doctrine does not make men careless and profane. It is the power of God unto salvation. Only this truth even will make men do good works. Remember that first qualification of a good work to proceed from a true faith. A true faith a true faith is that which relies upon Christ's perfect righteousness. That's a true faith. Only when God's people are relying on Christ's perfect righteousness will they do good works. And when they go forth to do good works without relying on Christ's perfect righteousness, it's, it's not a good work. Do we then make void the law in teaching this, Paul asks? Do we make void the law through faith? Romans 3.31, God forbid, here we establish the law. 
It's the only way we will obey the law. By faith in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Instead of coming forth from faith, the good works of Rome and the good works of any unbeliever can only come forth from pride and from fear. That is their motive. That is their heart. Pride because there is an imagination that I can merit with God. I can make God owe me. That's pride. And fear. I'm trying to do good works so I don't go to hell. Pride and fear cannot produce good works. They're weak motivations. Only gratitude as a child of God rests in Christ by faith will produce good works. I have one more point to close before I close. And that is to make clear something that is important for us as a church to hear and a denomination as well. The charge of antinomianism comes against the doctrine, the catechism says, the doctrine. This doctrine makes men careless and profane. No, the truth can't. But man can. The doctrine won't make man careless and profane, but man will take that doctrine and twist it for carelessness and profanity. That's a reality. That's a reality in Reformed churches and Protestant Reformed churches too at times. Not going to ignore that. It is possible for members of Reformed churches to twist this doctrine and excuse their profane and careless lives. Profane means wicked. Careless means indifferent. It doesn't really matter if I live an immoral life. God will change me if He will change me. Good works are optional. I don't have to try. It's not my responsibility. And so on. That kind of attitude. What's the explanation for that? Profane and careless lives in a Protestant Reformed church? Our sinful natures, not the doctrine. Don't blame the doctrine. Our sinful natures. And that is continued in careless and profane lives. It demonstrates unbelief. A dead orthodoxy. That can happen in the most conservative of Reformed churches. The point is, it might not be the doctrine, it is not the doctrine of justification by faith. But we must recognize that we, sinful men, can abuse that doctrine. So if the charge comes, beloved, to you and to me, Antinomianism. Maybe not the doctrine itself, but you. Antinomianism. Don't immediately say, 
that proves that I'm orthodox. No. Examine your hearts. Am I by my ungodly walk, my profane and careless life, am I the occasion for bringing blasphemy against this precious truth of justification by faith alone in Christ alone? That must be our response. Is our life bringing the charge? Not the doctrine, but man can do so. And then having seen with humility that each one of us has, we have sinned even before the world and brought a charge like that due to our own ungodliness. Then I say, beloved, Go back to the cross. Repent and believe. Believe in Jesus Christ and His perfect righteousness judged as yours. And live by faith in Him. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.